Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of their rabbis and their married. We're so happy to be with you here right now. Obviously, things are not so good in the world. We are struggling tremendously right now. I know every day is difficult to be a Jew right now, whether living in Israel and dealing with the war situation over there. And obviously we're praying for the troops, for IDF, for the IDF all the time. Uh, I'm praying for the state of Israel that this conflict can result in, you know, very, as, as little bloodshed as possible and to take down Hamas and achieve some sort of stability, security, praying each and every day. Please join us for our Prayer for Israel every day at noon between Tuesday, Tuesday through uh, Tuesday through Friday, Tuesday through Friday, um, and you can hear our prayer about the state of Israel. That's on Facebook Live. On Facebook Live, but I think it's really important. And I've spoke about this in sermons many times that we continue going on with our lives, doing the sacred obligations and sacred tasks that we've been given by God in this world to do, because we still serve God in this moment. We're not just here to, to worry, to watch the news on repeat over and over again, although it's so tempting. And don't worry, usually at least every half hour I'm still checking the news. But we really have to try to do the best we can to serve God in this world and do our obligations. Whether that's serving our family, um, serving our communities, doing our jobs, doing our obligations, that is so essential. And, and being a Jew in this world, because there are so many people who want to stop us from being Jewish and, and celebrating our traditions. So all the more so, and in that spirit, we continue on talking about such important Jewish topics, even though Israel certainly will not be our focus of our conversation today. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think our topic today is um, particularly relevant because it's about building relationships, and we've seen how important that is. But before we get into our conversation today and our topic, I want to just a little bit of, of revelry, a little bit of lightness here. What's been going on with you, Rabbi Rachel? What have you been doing lately? Well, to give people a sense of time, we're recording this on November 1st, and we had our first snowfall in Minnesota on October 31st. True. Snuck right into October there. Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was incredible. And like that morning when I was shoveling the snow outside, it was like, it really felt like I was like in the middle of February. It was like, really, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. But this is just being a Minnesotan, I guess. This is just what we do here. So. It kind of feels good to have an early snowfall. It feels like, yeah, we're Minnesotans. We're tough. We can right. handle this winter. I'm afraid about the slush, though. It, the, the melting and the slush. We don't do slush in Minnesota. We only do real snow, okay? And the roads need to be, we don't, and New York is the slush place. That was where all the slush was. It's true. And the roads, I mean, don't get me started. This is such a St. Paul conversation <laughs> to immediately talk about the snow and the road conditions. But oh. what did they do to the roads? They like didn't even wait for the potholes to emerge in the winter. They just decided to take the whole Rachel, like, top off we the have roads the whole, at the beginning. We have the whole entire winter to talk about the road conditions in St. Paul. It but hasn't it's just even started amazing. yet. It's November 1st and the roads are completely destroyed. There's, they just gave up all hope of having <laughs> passable roads this summer, this winter. Yeah, I'm not, how am I not surprised? Um, we also did our first watching. Uh, Rachel and I do not uh, celebrate Halloween, as we talked about in previous episodes, but we do watch Halloween movies, <laughs> and we watched for the I can't believe I made it through the, my youth not seeing this masterpiece of film. Right, this was a core part of my youth, um, but for some reason, Rabbi Marcus had never seen it. The movie, this will be a very millennial reference. I apologize for our older, younger listeners, but Halloween Town, a Disney Channel original movie. Wow, that's a banger. It really, it's incredible. Halloween Town is really, that was a good movie, and it's like creative. It's, it's I mean, it's a little short. I mean, you know, there are some big plot holes, but but it was really good. I will. And the, the special effects were amazing. <laughs> it was like it's for those who don't know. Halloween Town is about this like magical universe filled with warlocks and monsters and wizards and all sorts of things, and the they are just regular humans with like some face paint on. <laughs> yeah. Like their hands are still like regular human hands and like their face happens to be painted monstery, I guess. It's it's amazing. It's there takes a lot of suspension of disbelief to watch the movie, but it's an incredible artifact from Rabbi Rachel's youth and I'm glad it's part of my life now. So, and we will be watching the three sequels tonight after our child goes to sleep. 
which might never happen. And so. eating the leftover candy that we didn't hand out last night. So well, yes, although perfect. some kids stole. I don't like that story. Some kids stole all the candy. I mean, okay, I, okay. I was putting Hattie. I was putting our daughter to sleep, and I put out Big the bowl of. Ca- I put out Big the bowl mistake. of candy, and within literally five seconds, it was all gone. But like that's Halloween. I mean, if that's the worst thing kids are doing in this Halloween, this is why we don't engage in Halloween. Right, right. This is the gonna, danger of Halloween. Okay, teach us bad values. What were we going to do with the candy? It was fine. <laughs> If you celebrate Halloween, that's wonderful. I'm just joking, everybody. Okay, on to our topic of today. It's good to laugh a little bit. I haven't done that in a while. Um, let's go on to our topic today. I want to introduce our amazing um, guest today on our podcast who's become a good friend of mine, and we've been doing incredible, I think, work together, and he's been doing incredible work in St. Paul. Why don't you introduce yourself? Well, first of all, Rabbi Rachel um, Rabbi Marcus, thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. My name is Reverend Phil Romine, um, and I'm the director of the Opportunity St. Paul program at Interfaith Action of Greater St. Paul. See, I feel like you do everything in Interfaith Action. So, you know, it's like <laughs> you, you, when I think of Interfaith Action, your name comes up, your like head comes up in my head. So, that was, I believe, by design. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Do you want to tell us like on one foot what what your work entails? Sure. So we Interfaith Action runs uh, four programs, community-based programs that seek to reduce poverty in our community and increase families and individuals' economic stability and mobility. And our four program areas, we have uh, Department of Indian Work, um, Project Home, Opportunity St. Paul, and uh, the Community Power-Up Program. My program, Opportunity St. Paul, is basically all about mobilizing people from houses of worship um, as volunteers with volunteer work that's making an impact in the community that is helping folks achieve economic stability and mobility uh, by working alongside them, by coming alongside them, both through um, our other pro- our programs as well as getting them out into uh, six uh, nonprofit partners who do amazing volunteer work in the community, Common Bond Communities, Daily Work, Eastside Learning Center, Reading Partners, Neighborhood House, and the St. Paul Public Library. So kind of in a nutshell, part of the reason why you associate me with Interfaith Action is because I am constantly going out and telling everybody who we are, what we do, and inviting people to come and join because if we have, the, the, just this past fiscal year, we had a little over 5,000 total hours of volunteer work that was contributed. How much better would our community be if it was 10,000 or 15,000 or 30,000? So, yeah, that's a little bit of, uh, of what we do. That's incredible. Our community has a longstanding relationship with Neighborhood House, and Neighborhood House has a longstanding Jewish history. And so it's even more powerful to be able to take that longstanding relationship with Neighborhood House and expand it to be part of this incredible interfaith work that's happening. Yeah, it's absolutely unbelievable. I'm so impressed by Interfaith Action and what they're able to accomplish here in the city. And it's it took me a while. It like took me a while to understand sort of the way interfaith work worked in St. Paul, or at least works at this point in time. And it seems, and I, we've talked about this extensively, um, there is a, a, an interfaith organization called Min Min, Multi-Faith Network of Minnesota, lots of mins, um, <laughs> which is really built for, for interfaith clergy to sort of an interfaith, uh, you know, different people of different religions to get together to create social networks and, and have these important conversations that they need to be having with each other. And separate from that is interfaith action, which actually is about getting together people from different faiths to actually do work, to do good things in the community, to help people out in, in, all of those wonderful ways that you just said. And so I think that's like super cool. And it's like an interesting way to, to break down, like what is the point of getting together of different religions getting together? And, and that's great segue. It's our, it's, that's our, our conversation today. We really wanted to talk about interfaith and what is, in, what is interfaith relations? Why do we engage in it? How does it work in St. Paul? How are we engaged in it as, as a congregation? Um, what are steps we can take to, to do more? And, and a lot of interesting, I think, important philosophic conversations about, about, what it means uh, to come together um, in, in an interfaith way. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about all those lovely things today. But before all that, I really want to talk about our personal experiences. 
what are our personal, you know, upbringing? Um, how have we been involved with interfaith work and, and sort of why is it so important to us? Reverend Phil, why don't we start with you? Well, I think at a, at a very young age, so I was, I'm not from Minnesota originally. What? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Illegal. Three non-Minnesotans <laughs> gathered in a room and recorded a podcast <laughs> but we in Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> we love Minnesota, don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, it, it, I, so I was, I was raised in a, in a home that was Christian, but non-denominational, kind of evangelical, fundamentalist. Um, and probably a lot of the stereotypes that are arising in people's minds are fairly accurate to my experience growing up. And But from a very early age, I remember one of the first things that I said to my parents, I think it was my mom, I was going to children's church, which was kind of the thing that you did when all the adults were sort of in worship and they sort of, you know, segregated the kids off and were supposed to do their own things. And and I told my mom I didn't want to go to children's church. And she was like, why? And I said, because they sing little kids songs. And I'm seven. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I I didn't, the reason I think I said that, and obviously I didn't have the the words or even the thoughts quite uh, quite at the time but it it just str- everything struck me as i was given this extremely confined and narrow way of understanding something that seemed so big and so vast as being a person of faith and it seemed i was like well we're just talking about the same things all the time we're singing the same songs and it's all praise this, and this is wonderful, and Jesus, and Jesus is the only way. And it just, I was like, I think right around that time, it it hit me that what if I wasn't born here? What if I was the kid of somebody else down the street, and they didn't go to my church? What if I was born in a completely different part of the world? What if I was born in a completely different time? Um, and so just that, just that imaginative, just that natural imagination, leaning into my natural imagination at that time in my life to put myself in a different possible living situation made me realize, like, I feel like there's a lot more to this than I'm being told. <laughs> and that was, I think, really the start of my, my journey and kind of nobody is more surprised than me than that the word reverend is now before my name because I I I spent so much of my young adult life and um late 20s and stuff unpacking and deconstructing all of the things that I had absorbed growing up but I found conversation partners kind of within if you will the pantheon of Christianity who were open to that it was like well this is part and parcel of what it means to be a person of faith this is what it means to live an authentic life and uh and wouldn't it be nice if we just had actually it would also it wouldn't be nice it'd be really scary if we had this compartmentalized concept of god the divine something you know the ultimate that we could just sort of package and sell to everybody (laughs) and um so to to be engaged kind of by my own tradition as it were and then to realize that there's all these other ways (laughs) of engaging these deep questions around beliefs and practices around what it means to live a life, what it means to die, what it means to be truthful, what it means to engage suffering in the world. Why wouldn't I be in conversation with what it means to be human with my fellow humans? So that was, that's kind of, that was sort of some of the genesis and then kind of some of the, the ongoing uh, narrative of my, my interfaith journey. Wow. That, that was an incredible story. I've never heard that before. It's amazing we don't, like, talk to people about their pasts more and, like, wow. I just, I did not know that. That is really an incredible, incredible story and, like, very inspiring to me in particular. I don't know. It's just, like, really just the idea of the search for truth and, and, and uh, your empathy towards saying I could have I could have uh, you know been born to a Jewish family or a Muslim family or whatever. Um, I've noticed that empathy in you, you know, one of the, you were you were one of the first people to contact me um, after this the war in Israel and and just just to reach out and just to kind of sit with me and be there and I just really appreciate that and you are one of two people who have uh, reached out to me of interfaith clergy who've reached out to me and that number is unfortunately very low 
But now it makes sense to me why you would have done such a thing because that's who you are, right? To have that empathy to sit with someone else. And I just really, really appreciate that. And yeah, your story is just incredible. The coming back to Christianity part at the end is, is just wonderful. So many people just sort of walk away and say, that's it. Um, but to, to kind of re, re-immerse yourself and find that tra- in a way that's healthy, in a way that's non-fundamentalist and open-minded is just, is just beautiful. I am laughing a little bit as the person who runs a lot of our youth programming here. I feel a little bit of empathy for your youth pastor who was just trying to teach you some hymns. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, the, and, and that, and I think that's, that's also sort of, you know, part of it is that, um, it, you know, often it wasn't, it wasn't those, it wasn't the, vo- it actually was not the professional voices in the room who were kind of crafting the experience or facilitating it or being with people. It was all of the behind the scenes conversations with, you know, people in your extended family, people who clearly seem, they have a lot of angst about you leaving or, you know, going through the normal developmental process of questioning all of the things that you've been raised with. Um, that, that it, 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 it often was not, it was, it was not the professional mm. pressure. It was, a, it was the personal, um, it, it was the, it was the personal angst. It was the personal, you know, really wanting to hold on to like this is this is really what it means to, this is what it should mean to be a person of faith. But it's just so small. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I, I, I want to talk about your story, forever, <laughs> but we gotta keep going. We got um, some other stories to oh cover man. here. <laughs> oh, I have so many questions. Um, for another time, we'll have to have you on again at some point. Well, I want to hear. I want to hear these. Yeah, let, let's I so, hear these. So I'm, I'm very curious, Rabbi Rachel. What about you in interfaith? Where, where, where are you with this? Since you've had a different upbringing. Sure. So I mean, I've shared on the podcast a lot about my upbringing. Um, I uh, grew up um, at Jewish day school, so I grew up primarily with uh, my whole social network being Jewish. You know, my friends from school were Jewish, and my friends from synagogue were Jewish, and my family is Jewish. So I just kind of grew up in this very insular. Um, Jewish community. Um, and so my beginnings of kind of interfaith work um, were not kind of uh, organic friendships that emerged from different uh, faith friends at school. Um, it was really intentional interfaith work. When I was in high school, we did a lot of um, intentional interfaith work that was called such, primarily with the Muslim community, actually. And we did some with the Christian and Catholic communities, but I think there was kind of this understanding that we shared so much in common with the Muslim community, both our understanding of what religious law looked like, our understanding of being minorities, um, uh, and our kind of shared a lot of the Jewish history we learned was about kind of the oftentimes more tolerant uh, experience that Jews had in Muslim lands than they had in Christian lands back hundreds of years ago. A lot of my interfaith work was primarily with the, with Muslim students in the Muslim community. And it wasn't until like much more recently that I started doing any sort of kind of interfaith work with the Christian community. Um, and it's been interesting. It's been, I think for a lot, at least I'll speak of my experience in the Jewish community, it's a lot more kind of like cultural exchange than it is some sort of like theological exchange. I think maybe from your story a little bit and from other stories I've heard from Christian clergy, it's very theological. And and that's I, it hasn't been true for me, and I think not true for a lot of Jewish clergy. That's much more kind of a cultural exchange, perhaps because our community is as a minority is a little bit more insular, like protective of our own religious theology. Yeah, yeah, but it's very different, I think, coming from you know a place where you didn't grow up with other people besides. Jews in school. Those were your yeah. Friends. My first, my first non-Jewish friends were in college. I mean, it's yeah. as crazy as that sounds. I mean, I did grow up in a very Jewish suburb, also of Chicago. So a lot of even if I had gone to public school, uh, I think a majority of the students would have been Jewish. Um, but um, but yeah, my first my first non-Jewish friends were my college roommates. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah, very different, very different from, I think, my upbringing. Um, you know, as many of you know who have listened to this podcast before, I grew up in public school. Um, and although our school was 60% Jewish, yep, you heard me right, 60% Jewish from our public school growing up in Long Island. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of crazy. Um, and, and a singular, sort of a singular experience, I think, for Jewish Long Islanders, basically. Still, there was a good 40, 40, 50% of my school that wasn't Jewish. And 
you know, Indian, uh, Hindu, Muslim, uh, Chinese, different kinds of Asian, uh, obviously uh, white Christians and everything like that, Italians, Irish, you name it. Um, we had it at, at our, um, we only had a very few uh, African Americans, unfortunately, and uh, hopefully it's getting a little bit better. Um, but uh, that was unfortunately the way with racism, <laughs> as we know, unfortunately. But because of that, I grew up with a lot of different um, friends. I was actually mostly not friends with my Jewish friends. I, I didn't like them very much or the, the kids at Hebrew school would always bully me. So I like really didn't, I was more friends with the Indian kids and like the, and a lot of Italian kids I was friends with growing Bill up. Bill talked about the kind of stereotypes of fundamentally evangelical. You can talk about the stereotypes of New York, Long, Long Island, Island Jews. Jewish <laughs> oh my God. I was locked in a closet many times in Hebrew school. Okay. Many times. That's what you get for loving the Torah. Um, but, but um, it wasn't it wasn't the most pleasant. But but regards, I, I gained an appreciation. I remember you know going to the botanical gardens in Queens with my my best uh, Hindu friend. Uh, uh, his name was Yash, and um, I, he would always make fun because I still can't pronounce his name correctly. And he was actually Jane, and he would take me with his family to the botanical garden in Queens, and we would have this like amazing Indian. Uh, lunch and eating foods that I never knew because literally I grew up on like diners, like Italian food, Chinese food, and that was basically it. Maybe Jewish deli every once in a while when it's on a special occasion, you know, so eating all these strange flavors and, and just like being around people who like live very different lives. He had, he lived with his whole entire extended family in his house. Um, so his uncles, his grandparents, they all lived together and it was a, an amazing loving family and it was just incredible. And so I had a lot of experiences, um, like that growing up, um, I was always extremely interested in interfaith work. Uh, when I started getting into religion when I was a kid, um, I, I was in middle school and I would read the Torah every night. And I, 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 when I was in middle school, I read the pa- a page of the Bible every day and I eventually finished it in, in high school, which was awesome. But I wasn't just interested in Jewish texts. I was interested in from all religions. I read the New Testament. I had read the Quran. I have to interrupt you. Can you quickly tell the story of how you got your dad out of a uh, speeding ticket? Oh, that was a funny one. Oh man, we were in we were in rural Florida at the time, and uh, we were driving down the road. And, and of course, my mom was speeding. She tends to drive fast. Um, she's got a heavy foot. And uh, basically, we were pulled over. And I had just gone to a bookstore and bought a Bible um, because I was really interested in the New Testament. And I was in I was in middle school. I just loved reading sacred texts of all kinds, and I loved Bibles. Um, and so I had the Bible on my my lap and this, you know, Southern, you know, police officer comes up, you know, with his belt loop coming up and, you know, and he's just giving the ticket. And then he sees this little, like, you know, 11 year old with a Bible. Hello officer. With like my Bible in my hand. Thank you. He didn't know we were Jewish. Um, but immediately he sees the Bible says, have, have a great rest of the day, have a holy rest of the day and walks away. So I, I that was the, the best I did in there. Um, maybe your one and only, uh, experience with, uh, Christian salvation. Yes. My moment of Christian salvation. Um, but it was wonderful. Um, I read the Quran. I read, um, the Buddhist scriptures as well. Um, Hindu scriptures, um, you know, did I understand them? Probably not, but I loved them and I loved interfacing with people of different. I, I did call all kinds of interfaith fellowships growing up um, when I was in college and in late high school. I knew I wanted to be a rabbi since middle school, so I figured I'd be doing some of this work. And um, I started an interfaith group in college, which of course didn't last because I'm terrible at organizing things. And especially in college, it was just awful. Um, that was before I met Rabbi Rachel, who helps me organize things. Um, but, um, you know, uh, regardless, the intent was there and the desire was there. I always felt interfaith work was really, really important um, because we are a minority in this country as Jews. We're a tiny, tiny minority. And we have to work together and find commonalities. Uh, with each other. And also, I think because of me, my pursuit was of God. It was God was always the central question for me and like having faith and wanting to connect to God almost in a mystical way. It was kind of like a perennial philosophy, like kind of way of saying like, well, everyone is going the same direction. They just have different ways of getting there. So I wanted to learn all the different ways because, hey, why not look at all the different ones? Um, eventually, I obviously committed to the Jewish one. Uh, but, you know, I think that was, uh, you know, a lot of the, the reason for my own interfaith desire or experience. Um, 
It's so demonstrative of our different kind of religious outlooks. I don't think I ever had an experience where I wanted to like search out different religious traditions for myself. Like I was intellectually interested in them and wanted to learn about them. I was an Arabic minor in college and I studied a lot of Islam in college, but none of it was because I was looking for my own spiritual path. Like I was very happy with my, (laughs) with my inherited spiritual path. And it's, it's just so, so demonstrative of our different kind of brains and how they work and how our spiritual paths work. We're very different. We're very different. (laughs) I remember my, uh, on the anniversary of my first date with my uh, the woman who's now my spouse, um, we were on a walk and people always, people, when you end up going to seminary and all that kind of stuff, there's these call stories, you know, they, they, they want to, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is resonant for you or not, but every, everybody wants to know what that narrative is. And right. mine, mine is not especially, um, uh, uh, exciting, <laughs> but Liz features prominently in it because there was this there was this day and we were wa- we were on on this walk we were having a wonderful time and she was like you know you should think about going to seminary and I she was the last person I I thought would say that and I, she was like you know you read religious nonfiction for fun <laughs> and most people are like most people around are like we don't do that she was like which well, it's fine um, but she was like you and you also go to church again. Not a thing that most people our age like do. And <laughs> oh, she was like, and, and then she was like, and you're not crazy. She's like, I, you know, but like, it just, it was this sense of like, that like, this seems to be something that's important to you. And, and the ability for um, somebody else to see that in you and to kind of reflect it back to you in this way that's totally free. That's just, there's no sense of obligation or anything else. We weren't talking about about that at all it just kind of it for me it sort of came from left field um but the but i think see that that's the that's one of the things that is to me very um striking about the relationality component of interfaith work um and also that freedom aspect that that we have commitments and we have a sense of knowing about who we are and where we're grounded and why that's important to us. And because of that, there is a freedom to be able to engage, I think, with other people from that same place who stand and are grounded in a very different understanding uh, or, or, a, or a closely aligned one. Um, but there's a great freedom there because it doesn't feel unmooring. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like... You don't have to worry as much. I don't have to worry as much about a sense of defensiveness, or if anything, with other sometimes with other Christians, or I'm like, oh, what what kind, what kind are they? What what am I? Do, do they think I'm the right kind? Is this going to be like a reverse conversion situation? Like I'm not, you know, <laughs> what what's going what's going to happen? Um, but there is it, it, to to be seen. I think in that way um, is is a is a real gift in my view of, of interfaith work and relationships. Absolutely. It requires a sense of self-confidence in, in who you are and your own religious commitments in order to be able to engage in this type of work. Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think there's, and I honestly think there's something boring about like engaging with only people who are not moored in their faith because then you like say something and they're like, Oh, maybe I agree with that. That's wonderful. And like, you need to actually have like real disagreement to actually have a conversation like, Oh, you think differently than I do. That's wonderful. How do you think differently? Why, why, where does that come from? Let me understand that. And that's impossible without, you know, being somewhat at least moored in your, in your faith or tradition of what you're doing. So this is the most I've ever used moored in my whole entire life. So <laughs> congratulations. Um, so, so, um, so very importantly, you told us what interfaith action does, right? And, and, and I love what they do, which is so important. How, how do you determine, let me say it this way. One of the reasons I love Interfaith Action, and, and the reason I myself, uh, our, our synagogue joined Interfaith Action, which we, as a synagogue, we very rarely join things in general. Um, so the fact that we joined is really a big deal, is because what, what's so wonderful about it is it's so apolitical. It's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's justice work. It's work of helping and lifting people up that somehow manages to avoid Democrat, Republican legislation, stuff that like, breaks us and polarizes us instead really is focused on direct action of actually helping people who are in need. Like no one can argue against like more kids should read, right? Homeless people should not sleep on the ground, right? Like that, those are, those are nonpartisan issues, I hope. Um, and, and 
it's so wonderful how you do that. How does interfaith action like choose the programs that they want, and and how does how does the interfaith nature of of the organization work in that? Well, so before we were interfaith action, we were the counts the St. Paul area council of churches, and we became the council of churches back in the 1940s. And before that, in 1906, we were incorporated as the Ramsey County Sunday School Association. <laughs> so to say that we have deviated from our original uh, grounding mission and philosophy would be an understatement. Um, and I, I think two of the four program areas that we are focused on right now um, were established during the time of being the Council of Churches. So the Department of Indian Work was started in the early 1950s. And again, sort of going through kind of a complete transformation, started as sort of a a food pantry and a clothing closet for, you know, quote-unquote, those poor Indians or those poor natives, um, who, by the way, had essentially been baited and switched um, in the midst of legislative maneuvering so that individual folks could sell their lands that were collectively owned on reservations so that corporations could come in right. and fractionate the land. That's a whole other podcast and yeah. conversation. Oh God, yeah. But, but um, and then, and being sort of convinced, oh, let's, you know, let move to the urban areas and, you know, find work and find jobs and everything else. And of course, the asterisk next to that was as long as you're a man and you're white and you're, and you're Christian, though, though you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, and it has now become a, um, uh, a, uh, a space of indigenous empowerment. It's complete. The, the department is completely indigenous led. We still have the food shelf and the clothing closet. Um, but we are the first culturally specific, uh, food shelf in the state of Minnesota certified, I believe in the state of Minnesota certified by super, super, sh- Super Shelf, I believe, and they help lay out people's food shelves to mimic the experience of being in a grocery store. Um, and uh, in, in addition to those services, we partner with the U of M on federal um, on um, family education diabetes series. We have after school in, and uh, summer school indigenous youth programming, um, and we're doing groundbreaking work around building out an economic mobility hub that actually recenters the person in the human services system instead of centering the system and is building essentially a human services system based on the needs of folks and families in the American Indian community on the east side of St. Paul. Um, so it's a long cry from an early 1950s sort of let's provide a little bit of food and clothing. Um, yeah. and, and then Project Home uh, used to be, uh, before COVID, a rotating temporary shelter model for families experiencing homelessness. And it was sort of the least worst option for families who were experiencing homelessness. Come and be in a house of worship for a month. There's, you're going to be between cardboard dividers and it's not going to be great, but it's not sleeping in the car. It's not being out on the street. And because so many of the ways that we built the staffing model and incorporated feedback from people who were part of it, when COVID hit and we had to go to shelter in place and we were able to work out a deal with the sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet to lease their building. We now have the largest family shelter in Ramsey County. And we were one of the leaders in the legislative work that led to um, a significant increase in funding for homelessness programs across the state. Um, So wraparound services for people experiencing homelessness. Um, And because we tracked data and we got feedback from the families who were in the program about what's working. What do you need? How can we bring the services to you as opposed to continuing to tell people, go out and find the services? And so really, uh, the, the the two programs, uh, Opportunity St. Paul, which I described earlier, and then Community Power Up, which now runs kind of a, a free legal clinic um, out of Progressive Baptist Church over on the east side of St. Paul, are all based around this model of... Families actually know what they need. Mm. Families really know what they need. Mm. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter whether they were born into generational poverty or not. It doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. Um, those things matter to the degree that there are many, many, there, there are often many times uh, significant, there are a lot more barriers in place for certain folks. And, um, uh, their needs are not paid attention to in the same way. And so bringing more people alongside p- 
people in our community means that we share those concerns. Like, we actually start to knit a sense of kinship with our community where we say, we're, we're actually all part of the same fabric of family in this community. And we have choices that we can make about where we invest our time and, and frankly, our money, even through legislative action. Not in, a, not in a, like you said, in a partisan or a political way, but in a, this is about families. And we will never deviate from the truth that families know what they need. And the systems that they are trying to navigate are not serving them adequately. So we will do whatever we can to bring the resources that they need access to, to them, in a way that is going to be empowering for them. And that includes bringing people alongside them to be part of that support network. Because if you have an extended family and things go sideways in your family, personally, or somebody loses a job, or um, big-time trauma happens... If you have extended family to lean on, you have a safety net, but you have family. You have that sense of connection. And I think on an inst- at an institutional level, that's what Interfaith Action is about. And so things started a little bit differently as the Ramsey County Sunday School Association. <laughs> <laughs> uh, training, training Sunday school teachers and providing you know, after-school religious uh, education back in the early 1910s and 20s and even 30s. Um, but, but that sense of being a, a, a familial community, to have a sense of kinship together. In the, in the Christian tradition, one of the turns that some of my colleagues have been making that I, that I agree with is they've dropped the G from kingdom of God, and they've been talking about the kingdom of God. Ooh. And I think it paints a like much more realistic, a much messier, <laughs> and a much more accurate picture of what it means for us to actually try to do common work together and to make our community a better place. And I see, and Interfaith Action isn't the only kind of organization that's that's about this, um, but our specific angle is really, I think, about centering families. Always centering families. That is beautiful. I mean, how could you listen to that and not want to be part of this work, this holy, holy work you're doing? I mean, really, I mean, you, you, you won me over real quick. Um, and we're we're really proud to be a part of it as as a synagogue as well. Just incredible, incredible work that does, and it, and it feels when you talk about like the core value being somebody who is going through experiencing homelessness or someone who's suffering in some ways or being marginalized in some way um, knows what they need. <laughs> they get it. Like, don't tell them what they need. They can tell you. They know better. That just feels so Jewish to me. Like, I feel like there are so many Jewish sources that talk about that exact thing about, you know, whether it's a pregnant woman who knows their own pain um, and, and needs to talk and, and can tell, and you should trust them over what somebody else says. Yeah. I mean, even with Sadaka, even with giving, um, giving charity in Judaism, there's an idea that, like, you should give people what, you know, what they need to live the life that they're accustomed to. So it's kind of controversial, but there's an idea of, like, you know, if someone who was used to living a life of, you know, wealth, and they fall into poverty like you should give them like the fine wine and the good cloth like you should give them the things that like make them feel like they're whole again um so you know we talk about like wealth disparity and you know it's a it's a bigger conversation but I think there is something there of like it's not about like how do we give everyone the bare minimum to survive it's about how do we give people the dignity of living a life that feels whole yeah I love that and and I think also the the kin it's cutesy but it's true the kingdom, kin- kingdom thing. I think well, I am laughing though because our whole theme for the high holidays was the sovereignty of God. Because in the Jewish community, we have the opposite problem of like we're so focused on like family and community, and we forget to focus on God. So we're trying to bring God back into the conversation. But going different directions. Yeah, I love. I always love talking about faith in, in, a, in a Christian church or in front of Christians. They just they just love it immediately. No. Jews, you start talking about faith and God, it's like. Eh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, we're getting better. We're getting better. Um, but I love what you said about the common values, this idea of, you know, we have our community here and this is who we have. Like, yeah, people move in and out of St. Paul and of course, um, but these are our people like, 
like them or don't like them, like we have to work together. These are the people we can work together with to make our society a better place, to make it better for people who are marginalized or experience oppression, suffering, et cetera, et cetera. And to make it better for us. I think I love that way you said of like, we're in kinship together. Like we're, we're all in this together. And like, it's not like we are serving the poor people who need help. Like we're all working together on this. Yeah. We all live here. We all, we all pay taxes. We all use transportation systems. We all navigate the same space. And so to, not be invested in understanding the historical reasons for the way things are, like why things became the way they are, and that that is not inevitable, and that we constantly have decision points to change the trajectory of how we are a community together. One of the powerful things I think about that that family-centric and that community-centric focus is that it it can really be as powerful as making a decision to increase your volunteer capacity one hour a week. <laughs> Again, that you know the, the the one of the things um, we talked about kind of at the beginning um, about how much better would our community be? Last year we had just over five thousand volunteer hours given to the entire organization um, by folks from faith communities and 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 other community groups. What would it be like if we had 10,000? What would it be like if there were 15,000? This was something that our, our former executive director talked about all the time. Uh, one of the things that we highlighted in our learning community events when we talked to, to people who had basically dedicated their lives to becoming what we call opportunity champions, people who saw their decision points in their day and chose the ones where I think this is going to have a this is going to have an impact not just on me in a positive way, but on the wider sphere of influence that I'm part of. Oh, beautiful. I mean, it's just incredible. Again, you're honestly wanting me to go to my computer and volunteer right now, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to push away that urge. Um, the, the, um, the question I wanted to ask to you, and, and I'm curious about this, and I, I think actually Rachel and I probably think about this differently as well. There was this thing that, that, we were talking growing up about the melting pot, that this, this America is this place where all the different cultures sort of come together and we create this common society together to, to be Americans. And eventually, when I became a teenager, people stopped talking about that. Instead, it became the salad bowl, right? That like really what, what America is about is, is respecting diversity, respecting people's differences, and that people with differences live together, Right. Um, and, and that's sort of like how we went, we, we kind of went forward and none, I don't, nobody questioned it back then. It all sort of made sense. In my older years, I'm beginning to question the salad bowl. We have this wonderful experiment in America of trying to build a country of multiple races, multiple ethnicities, tons of different kinds of value systems. And, and, and we respect that. That's a wonderful part about being in America. It's one of the best places to be a Jew in the world. Uh, probably ever uh, in the history of man. But in order to build a, a country together, in order to have do things together, you have to have a set of common values, right? And I, I find myself, and, and the struggle I'm having, um, is that it's wonderful to respect diversity, but then if you don't have the other part of the conversation, says, okay, I understand that we disagree and we're different and we need to respect those differences, but we need to have the conversation about what do we agree about? Like, what are our common values? And, and sort of this work that needs to be done to me of like establishing a, a, a patchwork or, a, or of, of common values of what it means to be, a, be American in this world, whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, what, what, like that's so that we can work together. And if we only just talk about our differences and respect our differences, how do we actually work together to actually achieve positive good in our communities? How do we actually be a community if all we do is talk about our differences? Um, you seem to, we seem to have found a way with interfaith action of like, you know, you have these projects that you get together, but that's why I'm curious about this. Cause I think interfaith action is doing this in some ways really wonderfully. Where do you sit on that? It, the salad bowl, the melting pot, <laughs> you know, is it really about just respecting differences or do we have to have this conversation about common values and working together? And how does that work for you? That's that's a little bit of a, uh, a complicated question that I might make a little bit more complicated. So <laughs> I haven't. I have also heard. I also heard 
both the melting pot and the salad bowl growing up. Um, and, and also haven't spent a ton, uh, a ton more time thinking about it. But one of the things that has become clear to me in the last decade or so, as I've thought about, especially like my own sense of identity, um, and kind of harkening back to some of the, uh, our earlier conversation about growing up and kind of using my imagination to project myself into sort of alternate realities or alternate historical spaces. One of the things that really uh, destabilized my sense of what it means to be a person in the world and to seek a sense of identity or a sense of commonality around identity. There's a Christian theologian named Willie James Jennings, and he wrote this book called The Christian Imagination. And I'm only about a third of the way into the second chapter, but the first chapter really does a pretty destabilizing, but I think helpful thing when we talk about identity. He talks about the colonial project. I believe it was either of the it was either the Spanish or the Portuguese, or sort of a bit of a combination of both. And there's a moment in the recounting of the colonization of an area of uh, the African continent, and sort of and realizing that one of the key moves in the colonial project was in divorcing a person's sense of identity from the land that they were born on. That their sense of identity no longer had currency based on their geographic location in the world. That it only had currency based on the shade of their, at the time, sort of the shade of their skin. But you can then, I think, kind of extrapolate that out to how do we build a sense of shared and common identity that is linked to the land. And so I think that one of the things that the melting pot and the salad bowl do that's helpful is it talks about how we interact with one another and it talks about how we do that interpersonally and politically. But I think that one of the things that's missing and one of the things that I think we can't avoid is talking about the importance of land. And I also know how charged that is right now because <laughs> we're, not, we're not just talking about it here. We're talking about it globally and we're talking about it in the midst of really, really difficult international conflict. Both what is very current for, for us in the news, but also what is happening in other places that are not getting the same kind of news coverage. Um, but I think the historical component around how, what is our relationship to the land and what is the history of people's relationship to the land in how they form identity with one another, I think is um, a critical part of the conversation about how we actually gro- ground ourselves in a set of common values. Because similar to sort of we're all in community together, we're all in community together in a like geographic location <laughs> in a set specific place that has seasons and that has that has variability and that has specificity that matter. And so it really is, I don't have the answer to it and I don't, but I, but I think one of the things that is missing that I wish were more prominent and it's something that um, folks uh, from indigenous communities that I've been learning a lot from over the last decade have reinforced again and again is this, is this the importance of understanding our relationship to or our lack of relationship to the land where we live and that sustains us. And that's one thing that I kind of wish, that's, that's one thing that I wish we were more explicit about in our, in our politics, in our relationships with one another. And I, and I think it would, I actually think that it would have the ability for us to get a lot clearer, a lot quicker about what we share in common. All of the like noise around political division in our kind of two-party system, I think would melt away <laughs> in a different way, um, climate change pun intended, I guess, uh, <laughs> to, 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 to focus people on like these are practical issues about how we live where we live, how we got there, and how we move forward. And just, I know we have a lot of... Um, 
trepidation, um, especially non-Indigenous folks, around like looking at history and all that other kind of stuff. But it doesn't change why, in my view, we're having so many problems talking about how we move forward from where we are right now. So um, that that I think is uh, that's what I that's that is where I hope conversations about common identity and common values can can start um that we have kind of a a a third rail or a third leg of the stool to talk about our own sense of identity because we have such different ways of being here we have such different stories about how we got where we are and i think i think that's so important i guess i mostly problematically didn't answer the question no i mean it's an interesting answer and i find myself so uncomfortable with it Mm. um and i wonder and it's it's funny because in some ways like your framing of the question marcus too is so un-jewish um, like the only, we could only have this conversation as Jews, like post Napoleon, right? Like post like Jews mm. becoming citizens. Yeah, it's an, Ameri- of it's an a, American conversation. It's such an American conversation. And yeah. I think, I mean, I feel, I am fully American. I feel fully American. Um, but I don't feel rooted in America, like, especially to the land, right? Like I don't like your whole, your whole framing of relationship to the land. I do not feel at all rooted to this land. Um, and I don't think anyone in Jewish history has ever felt rooted to any land except Israel, right? Like we, yeah. we've never felt, we've always felt like we were visitors in every land we've been in, regardless of what our relationship with the government and the state were. Like we happen to live, as you said, in an amazing land, an amazing country that accepts us as, as full citizens for one of the first times in Jewish history. But we, but I don't, and, and it's certainly my home and I couldn't go anywhere else, but it, it's not my like ancestral home you know it's not my home home it's not my rooted home um and i feel very little connection to yeah. the land itself i would i would agree with you as as a jew it like really it, it's very utilitarian i would say that's that's one thing i think we really like we have to respect the land and sort of you know make sure we don't hurt it that's that's an important right, I'm not, I'm not a climate change conversation right right, right. Like but a, like but 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 this native american way of being like connected to the land is like something that as jews we just haven't felt in 2000 years like we just we kind of been bouncing around we've been kicked out of every country in the world um you know we don't have much trust in land we weren't even able to own land um for most of our history which is why we became business people and bankers and stuff like that so it's and even our holiday cycle is based around the Israeli Israelite agricultural seasons. Like we have a rainy and a dry season. Um, we start, you know, we start praying for rain in November because that's when the rainy season starts in 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 Israel. Even though it's been raining all summer here, <laughs> you know. So that and that's in some ways as Jews as we live in our lives in exile, and and it makes us very hard to you know, sort of connect the land, but yet we need to connect the land because that's what, this is where we are. And in the end, we are being impacted and affected, which is why I like what you said, because there's a commonality, like whether you're Muslim or whether you're Jewish or whether you're whatever, and you live in St. Paul, you're dealing with the same issues because of the land in which you live and the history of that land and its geographical features and whether there's a lot of water or a little water or it's really cold or it's not really cold or whatever it may be. And I feel like there is, there is a, what I love about what you said was that there is a place to find commonality saying no matter what you live in, we face the same problems because we're living on the same land, right? And so therefore we have to be connected to each other. And I want to also summarize your answer by saying it's not about the melting or the salad, it's about the bowl or the pot, which is, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I, just, I just needed to yeah, say that. Absolutely. Close, close the loop on that <laughs> metaphor. Right. I needed to close it. I needed to close it. <laughs> See, I, I, I think that but this, is, but this is also very challenging for us because we, we again, Again, we don't have this connection to the land. And I think that, like, I don't know. I just think there needs to be some, like, for me, getting involved in interfaith work is is trying to relentlessly find the commonalities. I don't really care about the differences as much. I mean, like, curiously, I care about it. But for the work I do, I, what I really care about is, like, what I have in common with you know, my Muslim brothers and sisters or, or my, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic church, people who are Roman Catholic and people who are, like, what, do we all care about helping poor people? Because if we do, then we have something we can work on and grow. Do we all care? You might, as, as a Catholic, you might believe something very different about abortion than I believe. But we're not going to, we, for me, 
the answer is we're not going to talk about that then. We're going to talk about what are the areas that, that we both believe that we should be helping you know, people who are experiencing homelessness. And that is the stuff that interfaith action does. I, I'm like, yeah, so I think that's, that's for me where I am at, but land has never, I'm trying to figure out a way to bridge the land part. I guess it's because we all live on the same land there. But which is which is but but then again I want to challenge you because I'm like we live in these boxes like does the land affect us that much like maybe I'm being naive here but like we live in these boxes that are temperature controlled boxes we get our food shipped from Argentina and from all over the world we can eat we're not like we're not connected to the land because we're not connected to the land in general right because we have all this technology that sort of shields us from being connected to the land so. Is the land such a, a persuasive element in our lives? And that, that I don't, because it has to be, for your theory to work, for it to find that common value, it has to be persuasive, right? And I don't know if it is. Well, for me, one of the things that, that's persuasive about it, and, I, and, and I, I, I completely empathize with especially the urgency of kind of dealing with the urgency of now that, like, how we've, Establish commonality now matters, like in in the in the very short term. But um, I was in Seattle uh, a few years ago before COVID hit, and uh, Liz and I were out on one of the San Juan Islands, and there was a guy who was a lumber baron, and then he you know just made a ton of money, and then basically just bought one of these islands <laughs> and turned most of it into like a preserve, and then mm. he spent like the latter half of his life. Basically, he like he has like multiple Japanese gardens. He like hired a gardener and then sent the gardener to Japan to learn how to build Japanese gardens mm-hmm. and brought him back. So it's all of these kind of somewhat surreal sort of things. But then just like dedicated the estate to the public. So you pay a little bit of money, but then you walk around this beautiful these beautiful grounds. But there's a rock right when you're coming in to the space, and I can't remember exactly what it says, but it says something to the effect of. Um, uh, man cannot do without nature, but nature can do without man. And kind of getting back to some of like the God question, for me, the land is a constant reminder of the extreme temporality of our existence, but also the intergenerational nature of our existence. And that what we do generation upon generation upon generation it impacts the land that we bequeath and that we've also inherited a lot from from that and so it isn't it isn't as urgent i i I do i will i'll i will agree with you on the fact that it's not as urgent but i do think that we will we can't get away from the fact that we are dependent upon it and that things will probably be fine if, if even if we as a species aren't here i don't i don't see the end of i but i just i think that we can't we can't unmoor that from how we can kind of find commonality. Um, and I, I don't think we should. I don't think it always needs to be like the leading thing, but, um, but I do think that there's a reason why people have lower blood pressure when they forest bathe. <laughs> there's a reason why um, our ability to like unplug actually has lots of tangible physiological benefits for us as people. And I think that that should matter to our sense of how we like are together. Um, so, um, but in all the ways that technology can kind of increase isolation and loneliness and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of, I, it is not a place where I feel I have a fully formed sense of understanding or, yeah, I but, but, I, I'm, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm living a lot of it out lately, especially over the last the last several years, and I would say especially after becoming a parent mm. <laughs> and seeing my children interact with the natural world um, and realizing just how little I know about developing a relationship with the natural world. Mm. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this requires a lot more conversation. I mean, we don't have time today yeah. to, to dig into it, obviously. You know, for me, you know, we got to end, but I think for me, like, I don't know. I want to say this one last thing. I look at the land and I'm like, the land doesn't care about me. It just doesn't care. Like, it, 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 you know, I, I hate to use this example, and, and I might regret this. I just have, you know, our, our editor take it out. But <laughs> um, we went to this, like, 
Native, we went on this tour of, of Native American lands around us, um, and it was, a, it was a beautiful, it was an amazing tour, um, really painful tour, obviously, to see the horrible things that happened to um, the Dakota peoples um, around here. And, but one thing I was surprised about, like, we were standing in, you know, under the fort of, of Fort Snelling here, and there was this massive massacre of Native Americans on that land, this holy land for uh, the Native Americans. And, you know, he's talking about how terrible all these people and walks around it reminds him of this massacre hundreds of years ago. But you look around it and it looked perfect. It looked like this beautiful scene out of nature. Um, and you would never know that anything was ever affected. And I'm sure that if you like looked into like the soil and the trees and everything like that, it would have been exactly the same as it was if it had never happened. It seemed like there was no impact on on that area. And it, it's the same look. You can go, you can go mm-hmm. into Europe where World War II happened on the battlefield. Have, have you ever been to Auschwitz? Like, yeah, it's, like if, if there were no barracks there, it would be this pastoral, like beautiful area. Right. And so I think that's what for me I keep coming back to, like. The land is like just doesn't care. Like the land is very inhumane. Like doesn't care about our suffering. No one would remember their suffering unless we talked about it, which is why we have to talk about it. But so anyway, we don't have time to talk yeah, about yeah, this yeah. now. But I want to. I want to. I want to continue this conversation with yeah. you. I re- and I hope we do. Um, you know, I, I think this is so important about how we fit because this is for me one of the most important conversations as conversations as an American right now is how do we figure out these common values? We want to maintain our differences. We want to maintain our different cultures. We want to celebrate our different cultures. But how do we then build together? Whether it's based on land, as you talked about, um, or or. Uh, different ways of getting there. Um, this is a conversation that I think we need to continue to have of how do we find unity amongst our differences and, uh, and while celebrating those differences. So that's really important. I love that Interfaith Action does that all the time through their amazing work they do. Um, so I want to congratulate you on that. Do you want to say something? Yeah, I just want to offer, I think it's a good segue into the work you're doing around the Interfaith service of gratitude and thanksgiving right like you kind of came up with this idea of let's let's have this interfaith service together and then it took some conversation of like okay what what are we what do we actually what can we actually agree on as like what are we even going to call this thing right like that was a couple conversations of like Mm -hmm. what are we going to call this how do we make it to a space that feels common but then you're not saying the content of the service is going to be you know, uh, let's wash away all differences and let's just say some common interfaith prayer that has no content to it, right? Like you're, everyone's bringing in their unique culture, their own unique take on gratitude, and it might look very different. Our take on gratitude might look very different than Phil's take on gratitude, but we can agree on that like general common value. Right. Again, why I think, why at least I came to Phil and I was like, I'd love to do this. And you're like, let's do it. It's wonderful. Um, You know, is because of we have this common value of gratitude and that we can come together through the sake of gratitude and hopefully build those bonds on some of our common values. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a plug, it is November 20th, Monday, 7 PM. You guys should all come out to it. The same, uh, the first in a while, um, St. Paul, uh, uh, interfaith, Thanksgiving event um, or, or event that is near Thanksgiving, whichever way you want to say it. And it's going to be absolutely wonderful. If you haven't registered yet, you really should register. It's completely free. It's being or, held here at Temple of Aaron. Being held here at Temple of Aaron. Thank you. Being sponsored by Interfaith Action and Min Min Minnesota Multi-Faith Network. Did I get it right? Wonderful. We really thank you for being here, Phil. We have enjoyed this conversation. I've truly, I always enjoy talking to you. Um, you are a worker, you're a doer, you're not just a talker. I've seen that very clearly. It's incredible what you do in this community. Keep on the good work. I really hope that uh, Rabbi Rachel and our congregation can be a part of that work and help you in any way and be your partner. And I just want to really, really thank you for sending that email that day, um, just checking in on, on how we're doing, because you were the first one to reach out that, that wasn't a Jew um, to us. And we were feeling, I mean, we're still feeling terrible. Um, but just that, I don't know. I, you can't even explain it, how it feels as a Jew right now when a non-Jew reaches out to you. And, and, and I, I, I can't explain I'm usually not wordless, but I'm wordless at this point. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I also want to thank um, uh, Jesse Ulrich, our producer and editor, at Rant 9 Productions. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, Jeffrey Baldinger and Colleen Deeker, who do a wonderful job um, 
with our theme music. Um, thank you again. And remember always to review, to comment, to subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast, They're Rabbis and They're Married. Um, it's going to be great. Our next podcast episode is going to be wonderful. It's really exciting. We have, we're going to be having our executive director of our synagogue, and we're going to be having a candid conversation with the Ken Agronoff. It's going to be incredible. And what we're going to be talking actually about, and the question that we want to put up is, is it too expensive to be a Jew? Is it too expensive to be a Jew? Right? Like kosher food, synagogue membership, like all these things cost a lot of money. And so is it too expensive to be a Jew? Or maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, or everything in between. So we're going to be talking about finances and Judaism and religious life. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. As you know, always talking to Ken, we always get some interesting wisdom and it's going to, I hope you're excited. That should come out in about two weeks, everybody. So it's going to be uh, really wonderful. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for Reverend Phil for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Marcus and Rachel, Rabbi.